Today on the University Podcast, what day of the week of, of it? What day of the week is it, Keith? Philosophy Fridays. <laughs> it's the I Can't Talk Friday because I've been talking all week. Keith, do you ever, uh, you know, when you're talking all day on campus, what do you do to, to silence yourself? Uh, the hard part, actually, when I'm traveling, because I'm often in someone else's home, and then I come home, have dinner with them, and they want to talk, and then they have kids that want to talk. So actually, it's really hard when I'm traveling and I'm in other people's homes. And so often, I'll get a hotel just to get away from people and not be able to talk for the evening and in the morning and kind of have my own schedule. Yeah, Keith, do you meditate like, you know, some guys do? I remember it was like Darren Patrick was saying, you know, you got to do like five minutes of, of silence each day, this, you know, in this noisy world, do you, do you meditate? Uh, you know what, when I'm on campus, I don't know, I, I, it doesn't quite fit like a, maybe a traditional meditation. I try to get to campus one hour early and I always try to sit there for 15, 20 minutes and just kind of quietly relax and get ready for the day. And so that would probably be the closest thing. I probably used to be better at it. Um, but again, when I'm in other people's homes, that's a, that's a, I, I get off track. So I wake up, I'm in someone's home. They want to have breakfast with me. Next thing I know, it's 9.30. I was like, I got to race to campus and I'm running, you know what I mean? And suddenly I'm kind of running late and I just rush on. And so ideally, I get to campus an hour early and kind of have that moment. I don't always do it just due to the nature of being with other people and feeling out. When I'm in someone else's home, I feel obligated to them. Um, even though everyone's like, oh, do whatever you got to do. And psychologically, I'm still yeah. like, I can't be a jerk. So I, I try to do that, but I don't always do that. Yeah. Good. Well, uh, we're working through some jargon words on the podcast. We started last week talking about induction and a posture, a posteriori uh, knowledge. And you have a new, a new phrase, a new jargon word for us today. And I'm going to let you try to say it. <laughs> what is right. it? And it is the opposite of the a, priori, a posteriori or whatever. Uh, it's the a priori. Um, and that is knowledge that you have prior to experience. And so you can have that through a rational deduction. And so uh, today is Aaron's wife's birthday. And so without experiencing any of us, if I was to say Keith is older than Aaron, Aaron's older than Ellen, it logically follows that Keith is older than Ellen. So without meeting any of us, you know that I'm the oldest of those three people. And so you have that knowledge prior to any experience of the world or going out to the world and studying it. But in order to know that today is her birthday, you need to go out to the world and you know, ask some questions, hear from her mom and ensure the date and all that sort of jazz. So you'd have to, uh, you get that knowledge by experience in the world. You don't get that by logic. So that's the a priori knowledge. And that's important as we discuss ideas of reason and rationality, because traditionally in the history of philosophy, uh, rationalism or rationality and reason deal much more with your ability to grasp those necessary connections more so than the inductive process of observing the world around you. And one of the things that's interesting is I'm reading this book and even just reading a lot of kind of more modern uh, philosophy stuff uh, and, and more of a pop level, Christopher Hitchens and stuff like that. When he's like talking about demonstration and proof, he's actually arguing science and induction, not traditional categories of what demonstration and proof would be depending on how you're, you're using that stuff. So uh, th those sorts of categories are important because you realize how quickly people maybe another fancy word for some people, equivocate, use language differently. So if I'm listening to Christian, Christopher Hitchens talk about a proof or demonstration, and he's actually using induction in the scientific method, we're actually equivocating at that point. And so anyway, the, the idea of rationalism and the a priori knowledge is important. And even much of this is predicated on the, much of the discussion in chapters four and five are predicated on the idea of like, kind of like already background knowledge that our faculties are reliable and all that sort of stuff that's prior to any experience these things have to be the case. So um, kind of all ties in. Yeah. So when I think of a priori, a lot of times I just think of the word presupposition. So can you tell me like, what's the difference between uh, your presupposition and something that is an a priori belief or knowledge or what's the difference there? I would say the, the difference is this. So it's not just a presupposition that I'm the oldest of the group. Um, you you kind of have to go through a line of reasoning to get there. Whereas a presupposition would be much more just the basic idea that the law of logic holds in this situation. So the, 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 the backing more presupposition, the more basic commitment that you'd be having there is that this line of rationality works in the real world. Now, the particulars of the a priori uh, knowledge is, is going to be it's oftentimes still has to be rational uh, reason through necessarily. Does it, so does that distinction make sense? So the idea that 
deduction works in the real world, um, that's a little bit more of your presupposition. Now, the particular outworkings of that in geometry or in our relationships is going to be a little bit more the outworking of the uh, a priori knowledge. So, so that that would be the distinction. So, can you talk about a priori knowledge in relation to the Bible? The uh, in relation to the Bible, well, I would say much. I'm, let me think of something. Well, you know, if you take creation, um, but even that wouldn't necessarily be. There'd be a little bit more of a presupposition. Man, you. Had, uh, <laughs> uh, I can't think of one off the cuff. I'm trying. I'm trying to think of in relation to the Bible because it's it's much of the Bible is actually historical. Um, you know, you could talk about our presuppositions going in and approaching the Bible, but I can't think of an illustration. Maybe Paul's argument in First Corinthians fifteen is a form of. Um, it's, it's not knowledge you have prior to experience, but it would be uh, the, the reasoning there would still work along the lines. If Christ has been raised from the dead, then um, if the dead are not raised and Christ has not been raised, but Christ has been raised, um, and therefore there's a there's a resurrection of the dead as part of his argument, and so that line of reasoning. I would say is is a form of deduction rather than induction, um, and so it's it's you still need Christ's resurrection in order to work through that logic. Um, so, yeah, sorry, off the cuff, I, I don't have I don't have an illustration in the Bible where you have that um, because much of it is uh, kind of in a sense real world of it's not inductive knowledge, but it's kind of a lot of it does have to be experienced to be known. Okay, so. so I feel like I've heard people say, you know, I have an a priori commitment to the Bible that it's the word of God or that it's true. That's why, that's why I, was, I was more so trying to understand, um, is that accurate or is that, is that equivocating with presupposition? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would see it a little bit more as equivocating but to say that, you know, you do prior to any knowledge, you have a commitment to that. But that, that doesn't, you know, I, I don't know what all the details of that would look like. Like, you don't prior to experience, you don't even know what's in the Bible. You know what I mean? And so you can say, I already have a, I have a, my disposition is naturally already committed to the Bible. So I'm going to believe what's in there. Uh, but without knowing what's in there, um, you, you know, it, there's kind of a certain element of, is that really knowledge um, and, and how much of it do you have? So even like, you know, say you read third, three John, what, what knowledge do you really have? And so, so I, I think, I think they're probably using a bit more presupposition um, that they have a, a, a prior allegiance to that, but it's not necessarily knowledge that they have, that they have a commitment to that, but it's not necessarily knowledge without experience. Yeah. So um, I'll just kind of summarize the difference here. So um, a posteriori knowledge, uh, literally in the Latin, it means from the latter. And then a priori means from the earlier. And the one would be, induction that would be the a posteriori uh, uh view and then a priori would be you're you're coming to a knowledge uh, you're coming to knowledge via deduction yeah um, and, th and through thought without any experience of the world uh you're arriving at that conclusion and so you know before you and i ever get to china we know that two parallel lines are going to intersect we know that two plus two is going to be four um, whereas we have to get over there to know how many people have the coronavirus and all that sort of stuff or the, the cause of the coronavirus and stuff. So that would be, that would be the distinction uh, that, uh, that the a priori and a posteriori make. Okay. And before, before we move on, I actually want us to hit this idea of equivocation because I think in, um, when you're reading anything – understanding the definitions of words is huge. And especially when people talk about contradictions in the Bible, or when we even think of how did we get a doctrine of the Trinity, or how do we affirm the two natures of Christ, or that James and Paul don't contradict each other when they talk about faith and works and, and how justification happens. So uh, talk to us a little bit more about uh, equivocation and then how that relates to our hermeneutics of just reading text, whether it's Bible or anything. Yeah. So in equivocation, if we're, if you and I are equivocating on language and probably the easiest illustration for this for me on campus is when we use the term love, you know what I mean? So, so on campus, some will say, you can't control who you love. You have to love everybody. Love wins. You know what I mean? So, so if you can't control who you love and we're supposed to love everybody, you know, how are you using love in these two different, and, and if we're using it in the same way in both sentences, uh, we're, we're in a bit of a pickle in using the term love. So, so anytime you're reading somebody and they're using terms and you kind of feel like 
they're using it one way here, then later on they're using they're, they're smuggling in a different definition or a different idea. That's kind of you know, they're changing their language. They're equivocating on the use of terms. And so anytime you're reading somebody, it's important to understand how they're using language. And so even in the context of the Bible, just because say justification is being used does not necessitate that the two of them is are using justification, say James and Paul are using it in the exact same way at the exact same time. And so there are many things, um, I'm trying to think of an example that we would use of uh, where we use language all the time that is, uh, and, and depending on our context, would be equivocating. And so um, gold, goldfish isn't a good example. For some reason, the little goldfish that you eat or a little goldfish. So depending on the context, it's going to determine which one you're referring to. And so you wouldn't really necessarily have a debate over those two things, but for whatever reason, that's, that's what's in my head. So, um, yeah, so, so it's, a, it's a challenge you have. Anytime you're reading philosophy or anytime you're reading arguments, I, I would listen to the way people are defining terms and using terms and holding them to that. And it's going to be important even in, in this, um, as we hit the chapter five a little bit, in the way that, like, say, naturalism is, is going to be used in the philosophy of naturalism and evolution and stuff like that. And you kind of realize that, they're, that they kind of slide off of their categories at certain points. And so you kind of want to hold them to their language and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I think one of the, like understanding what equivocation is or to say that someone is using language in an equivocal way. Uh, so you can use equivocation as a tactic that is sinful, like where you say, like politicians do this, where you smuggle in your meaning. So when you say justice or social justice, you have a whole... Uh, there could be so many different definitions of what you mean. And so we're wanting to ask, well, what do you mean by social justice? Do you mean what Marxism wants? Do you mean egalitarianism? Or do you mean, you know, a biblical uh, theonomic society? You know, those are very different ideas of justice. And I think people who want to, quote, take the Bible literally often trip over this because they they don't have the category that even scripture itself uses language in an equivocal way at times. So Paul, uh, I think uh, Paul would say, take a word like calling in Romans 8, and there's a very specific meaning for what he means by called. And it, it's this effectual called, uh, God is, if God calls you, you're in that golden chain of redemption. But Matt, uh, one of the gospel writers, I forget if it's Matthew or one of the others, will say, uh, many are called, but few are chosen. And so in systematic theology, we basically have to take all these equivocal uses of words and concepts and ideas and then try to define them. So we would have, uh, say, a general call, the gospel goes forth, uh, people know about Jesus, but then there's a more effectual call where the Holy Spirit uh, raises someone from the dead, etc. So um, one of the things I really ap appreciate about someone like John Piper is that, so he goes very slow through text when he preaches because he cares so much about what do words mean? You read his books, he's defining his terms all at the beginning. That's a very kind of logical way to try to make sure you are building on a solid foundation. And when you get into philosophy, um, you think of a word even like natural law. It's like, dude, how many different definitions of natural law are there. There's a bunch of different definitions. And that's going to be, uh, I think, one of the things you have to be on alert is people use words in different ways to mean different things. And that can lead to either misunderstanding and critiquing a belief that someone doesn't actually have. So oftentimes, it's, it's good to just ask the question, okay, well, what do you mean by that phrase? Or what do you mean by that word? Uh-huh. Right, well, uh, sorry, did you want to add anything to that? Yeah, well, yeah, you, you mentioned the people think about where the, the thing that stood out to me is when we come to chapters like Mark 13 or Matthew chapter 24 or even the book of Revelation. And that's one of the things that's kind of, maybe not straight up equivocation, but it, oh, we take the Bible literally, then they read grasshoppers like, oh, it's going to be helicopters. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, that's not really, that doesn't sound really literal. You know what I mean? We're no longer in <laughs> a place of it being literal. Um, but but when you, you, know, you, you read the prophets and when they talk about you know, the sun going dark, they you know, they're talking about powers being changed and stuff like that. And so even here in the United States, if I was to make a reference of your 50 stars are going to fall, you know, I'm referring to the states and the changing of the political and social order. I don't literally mean there's 50 stars in the sky. Uh, in you know, we could equivocate in those ways of the way I'm using stars, taking it literally, but I'm being figurative. So, so um, yeah, I just think it's vital um, 
uh, to yeah get at the idea of how we're using language. Yeah. All right. Well, today we're back in uh, Dr. Mitch Stokes' book, A Shot of Faith to the Head, and we are covering chapters four and five. And uh, I'll just bring you guys up to speed in, in case you're just jumping into this episode. So what uh, Dr. Stokes has been doing so far is demolishing this idea of evidentialism. And evidentialism, he says, is the view that all beliefs must be supported by sufficient evidence in order to be rational. And then he basically says, well, uh, this, uh, no one actually lives their life like this. So we, we do things, we make decisions without what we would say is sufficient evidence. Um, and yet we, we say that's reasonable. And today he's going to try to put forth now um, kind of the way the Christian worldview or the Christian uh, uh, view of, of knowledge would um, answer that question. Okay, if evidentialism is false, how is belief in God rational or reasonable? So Keith, do you want to uh, jump us into chapter four and talk a little bit about how he answers this question? Yeah, so he kind of goes after the idea, yeah, once kind of attacking kind of the evidentialism and the foundationalism that we all have to accept things on basically testimonies probably is a place where he begins uh, to get after it. And he ends up, and I think one of the key things that he does in chapter four, and one of the things that comes up all the time when I'm on campus is when, uh, and he does a really good job, I think, laying out uh, the, two, the two things he brings up is Archie Bunker, when he says, uh, faith is something that you believe that nobody in his right mind would believe. And also he quotes Mark Twain, believe in what you know ain't so. And uh, while I'm on campus, at, at, you know, especially with this group. So, so again, every time I read this book, I, I have particular kids in mind on campus. They all kind of wear fedoras. Uh, they're a little bit nerdy. They're kind of science oriented and they're all part of the secular humanist club. You know what I mean? It's like, it's a particular kid that I feel like I'm, I, I can hear on campus. And I can see on campus as I'm reading this book. And one of the, and they'll often assert that, that uh, faith is believing things that there's no evidence for. And he kind of has a uh, Hitchens element uh, that, that Hitchens kind of asserts their kind of strongly similar type language. Um, what Mitch ends up saying is, you know, much of what we know is based upon testimony and what he's arguing for um, is much of what we know. And even much of what scientists know is based upon testimony. And so he ends up defining faith that way. He says faith is, you know, I don't know if he used the language of leap into the dark, but when I'm on campus, I always say, you know, faith isn't just a leap into a dark. I actually define it slightly differently uh, than Mitch does here. Faith, he says, faith is believing something by way of testimony. And I, I think that's obviously one of the forms of faith. Um, and uh, so as I was reading, I was thinking, well, wh where was Thomas's faith in the mix? You know what I mean? You get old doubting Thomas who wouldn't accept anybody's testimony. He wouldn't believe until he sees them. And so I, I think there's a strand of testimony to it, but, uh, and Mitch kind of ties this out a little bit, but there's also oftentimes reasons. So even you place Adam in the garden, he's accepting God's word but he can look at the world around him and see a beautiful garden, see a beautiful woman and see fruits and trees and all this sort of stuff. So he has reasons to trust the voice that says, basically, don't eat from that one. Go ahead and eat from all of them. Just don't eat that one. And then uh, also Isaiah one, where he says, come let us reason together. So I do, but so I do think uh, oftentimes believing things on testimony is part of faith, but I do also think there's maybe you know, Hebrews 11, faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. And so there's a little more component going on than merely accepting things by testimony. But I think what he's driving at and the people that he's interacting with, that's marginally helpful, but it's only going to get so far with them, I think. So. Yeah, so the way that I understood him is, so I think this is probably the broadest definition of faith. And then I think he could specify into these other places because even Adam in the garden is, going, is relying on his senses. And, and so the way Mitch says it is, he has to believe the testimony of his senses. So I, I kind of like that, that way of talking about faith. So, and this would be one of the places where I'd want to say, all right, we want to define faith biblically. And we also want to be able to use bigger categories outside of the Bible. And I think this is a really good way of just talking about the way we come to a belief and, and I think it's really useful in exposing someone who does say, oh, we have all this evidence for evolution, or it's like we have all this evidence for um, uh, this idea that God doesn't exist, all this evil in the world. And I think 
when you push someone, he kind of he kind of does this pre-sup argument here where he's like, but can you trust your senses? You know, at what point does something become reliable? Or how do you, how can you trust that? You know? Um, so I th- he says here, uh, faith is more widespread than we realized. It is necessary for us to know our name, our parents, or anything from a map or book. And he gives this example of, you know, how do I, I forget if it's in here, you know, how does I, how do I know that I'm in Moscow, Idaho? And it's like, well, I've never tasted Moscow. I mean, maybe he, I don't know. Uh, what, what is Moscow, Idaho even? How is it defined? How would you know that you're there? And you, and you do kind of end up in the whole, um, what, how do I know that I'm not just a brain in the vat and I'm getting, you know. Yeah, because if you want to be skeptical about where are we, uh, there, there's no, there's, you know, there's nothing you can point, you know what I mean? There, there's no physical thing that you can roll out and convince somebody that this is where, where they are. And so, yeah, he, he mentions the being in, Moscow, they believe it because of signs and all that sort of stuff. And um, I, I think he's basically right. And the other thing in that chapter I really like, and I've never read, I've come across Thomas Reed in the past, um, but reading uh, this book makes me want to read a little more Thomas Reed because on page 54, I believe it is, he has a really like, and it is, it's kind of kind of like a common sense realism Christianity. Um, he just says, the wise author of nature hath planted in the human mind a propensity to rely upon human testimony before we can give a reason for doing so. This indeed puts our judgment almost entirely in the power of those who are about us in the first period of life. But this is necessary both to our uh, preservation and to our improvement. If children are so framed as to pay no regard to testimony or authority, they must, in the literal sense, perish for lack of knowledge. And I just kind of like the, there, there's like a, a common sense reality to it. And then also the, the thing as I was reading this actually was even more so the ethical component of just how vital it is that we tell the truth to one another. Um, because we, we need faith in the sense of trusting persons and the world around us. And, uh, in reading Thomas Reed, that just that component and the ethical component just stood out kind of the most to me. Um, that, and I may have even missed part of Mitch's argument because that, that's what I ended up thinking about the most as I was reading this was the importance of, speaking to one another truthfully so we can trust one another and rely on one another and everything else. Cause that is where most of our knowledge comes from. And so even anytime I'm studying anybody, I'm almost always reading secondary sources as well. Cause anytime I often even just read primary source, I'm like, do I understand what he's saying? And then I go to other people, then I have to trust. So even going to primary sources, isn't always the enlightenment. Sometimes it's more dark and misunderstanding. Cause even as he goes through here, the use of the word credulity over time has changed. Cause that'd be a perfect place of, uh, uh, kind of equivocation is that you use the term credulity one way 400 years ago. Now today it would mean basically being gullible. Um, and so th- those are the sorts of things like if you're just reading Thomas Reed and he's talking about credulity. You're like, oh, well, he's, you know, he's just pointing towards uh, gullibility opposed to, oh, he was using that word differently. And so you get that from context and everything else. Yeah. And just FYI, this is actually on page 33 in the hard copy book. I don't know if your digital pages oh, yeah. are digital Sorry, page must be different. You know what? It does, it does say 33. Uh, I'm, I'm on a digital book and I am, it does say page 33, but it's, uh, but the way my, the, anyway, the, in one sense it's on page 54, but it does say page 53. So I'm, <laughs> the, I'm, the pages I'm, are equivocating here. <laughs> yeah, that's right, that's right. So, okay. 33. Yeah, you're right. 33. Sorry about that. Yeah. And one of the, one of the things I really like about the way this book is structured. So the chapters are pretty short there, you know, there may be, some of them are even like five, seven, ten pages tops. But at the end, he has this four-year arsenal section, which, which is basically a summary of kind of the main highlights from that chapter. And so he, uh, if you go to page 38 on four-year arsenal, so he defines faith. It's believing something by way of testimony. And then he says, you know, that faith is more widespread than we realize. That quote I read earlier. And then he has two other kind of bullet points. And uh, one of them is faith is required for believing the testimony of the senses, as well as the beliefs delivered to us by our cognitive faculties. And then the last one is because all our beliefs are formed by our cognitive faculties. All our beliefs ultimately depend on faith. Uh, So Keith, this is where, this is probably the first time in the book where I felt like, okay, now you're speaking my language. I'm still trying to come to grips with some of the philosophical terms, but this just seems so intuitive to me. Yes. Uh, everyone has a worldview. Everyone is putting their faith in something. Everyone has a foundation they're standing on. And this is where the kind of 
presuppositionalism to me, this is what, when I think of what is precept, um, not in just the, like the strict Vantillian sense, I just think of this basic idea that everyone has some faith commitment and then you would fall out depending on how, uh, how much you've thought about this is, yeah, I've come to all my beliefs based on my sense ex- experience, or I've come to all my beliefs based on reason, you know, uh, science, which all these, I think, um, Mitch is trying to expose that what you think is evidence or reason or your sense experience is actually, there's something more fundamental. You have this basic belief, this basic faith assumption that your senses are reliable, that Darwin was right. You know, if people critiqued, uh, if uh, unbelievers read Darwin like they read the Bible, <laughs> mm-hmm. like what would be the state of uh, atheism today? Because they, they take them with different levels of uh, reliability. One they say is, oh, this is God's word. It's a bunch of fairy tales. But Darwin came to this via... Yeah, scientific and, method or something. Yeah, and the, op- and the operating assumption is when you read the Bible, everybody in the Bible was just biased. But if I read a scientific journal, these men are just kind of cold scientists who go into the lab and report what they find. But the people in the Bible, they can't really be trusted because they had a religious commitment. And so even just the way that they go approach the two things is radically different. They, they want to assume that scientists are cold, objective. They just give you the, the facts, like if you ever saw a dragnet, just the facts, ma'am. Uh, they think they're doing that, but anytime they read the Bible, they think these people are, are guilty. But I do think, or yeah, guilty of kind of being biased. Um, and I do think that is the important thing. I think, you know, and the more I think about just doing knowledge, I think that's the, the difficulty of the back and forth of doing knowledge is I do have my presuppositions and my commitments to the world. And then I also have a real, real world that bumps into me. And so there's a book by a guy named Thomas Kuhn called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And basically what I wanted to argue in there is that people had a paradigm and then anomalies begin to arise in your paradigm, which causes a paradigm shift. So let's just say when I was younger, I was an Arminian. And then some people said, oh, no, Calvinism is true. I was like, that's not true. And I started reading the Bible more and, or reading, and actually reading it in a different lens a little bit. And then I started thinking like, wow, these verses are an anomaly. How do I account for these verses? Then I had a paradigm shift uh, that took place. And oftentimes we just operate with the original paradigm um, without you know, bumping, necessarily being bumped into anomalies and things like that, that causes us to, to um, have a shift in our thinking. And I think that's, uh, I think that's one of the difficulties in, 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 in doing it for really, really being honest is I'm, I'm bumping into a world that at times doesn't seem to fit even, even some of my theology, you know, when you see people fall away or whatever it may be. So, so it's a both end um, that I have these anomalies within this paradigm that I have. And so I'm you know, committed to the idea of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Um, but then, you know, I have my text and I also have the real world that I'm going back and forth with. And, and the difficulty is you're interacting with the world, you're interacting with the text, and both of these are facts of my existence. So if I'm looking at something in the world, so if I'm walking down the street and I see a, somebody who I thought was deceased, I'd be like, I can, you know, I would reason through that I'm not really seeing them. You know what I mean? Oh, well, I can't be them because dead people don't walk around sort of thing. So anyway, there, there, you have that component of my paradigm that I'm bringing to the world and the facts of my existence. And I'm also doing that with the Bible and everything else. And I, I, and I just think it's, re- it, I guess, to be honest, it gets really hard the more you think about it. And, uh, and so you kind of at times appreciate certain levels of just kind of common sense. You know what I mean? Because we do, we function every day and we get a lot done and we're successful. Um, but if you think about it too much, it does get pretty difficult. Yeah. So this idea that faith is believing something by way of testimony, I think if you can explain this to people and get them to understand this, someone who's not a believer it really helps them to become what Van Til would call epistemologically self-conscious, where you're able now to kind of take a step back and say, because uh, this is a really humbling experience to say, yeah, maybe my, cog- what does the Bible say about how my cognitive faculties work? Well, it actually says that uh, my mind is corrupt, that my heart is sinful. And, and from a Christian perspective, we would say, man, you're like, cognitive faculties do not work correctly. They actually are not very reliable. It's kind of a miracle that any of us believes anything true. That in itself, like how would I account for believing anything true given even the Christian story? Well, I have to ultimately say it's supernatural, right? The Holy Spirit causes me to believe. He redeems, restores my fallen intellect and gives me uh, this ability 
to, he gives us the faith to say, yeah, that is true and that is false. Just before this, I was reading, I think it's in Hebrews 5, where it says, you know, those who have, uh, through the use of their uh, discernment, you know, uh, through use of practice, are able to discern the good and the evil. And talking about like this growing up, this maturing process that happens. I think that's part of what we're trying to do here is come to a level of maturity, uh, which is hard. It's a lot of hard uh, intellectual work to try to sort through these things. Yeah. And what you just lay out there is uh, important. I, I don't know if you have something else you want to build on, but going into the next chapter is, is a little bit, he, he brings in a critique of, uh, to an extent, in the context of Darwinism, questioning the nature of our faculties. And um, since a lot of his work is building out of a guy named Alvin Plantiga, who in the early 90s, I guess, and it's, it's, to be honest, it's not really original Plantica. Plantica kind of popularized it. I think part of the reason he was able to popularize it is because since he's a Christian philosopher, people want to often just set his critique in the context of theism debate with atheism more so than just a critique of uh, naturalism. But, but basically, the, the argument that they put forward a little bit in Chapter 5, which is Darwin's Doubt, is the idea that even Chuck Darwin himself would say, oh, I don't know if I trust the judgment of a chimp sort of thing. And so why should I, so he, and he kind of extrapolates out, you know, should I necessarily trust my judgment? And so if you take evolution and the idea of evolution is basically, um, you know, we, we adopt our environment to survive, there's no reason to believe that the faculties of our mind and our eyes and everything else that's going on are truth-gaining mechanisms, but rather that they're uh, mechanisms for survival. And may, maybe the easiest way to bring this up is if an atheist is talking about, and you ask them where religion comes from, they'll describe that religious beliefs arose uh, at a means of survival and community and da 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 So we had all these religious beliefs that were wrong for survival. And so why should I have any more assurance that my belief in naturalism more true than my belief in religion. How do I know that naturalism is not just a survival mechanism or atheism is not just a survival mechanism? And so the idea, and I think that's a pretty good one-two punch where if you consider what he's saying in chapter four and even maybe in chapter three, I can't remember exactly where he said it, but and his exact language was um, faculties functioning in their right environment or something along those lines. Um, I would say in the context of evolution, there's no reason to believe that our faculties have arrived at a place that are make, allowing us to believe truthful things about the world around us. And so I think that's a very helpful thing in chapter five that he lays out. Yeah, I found that really persuasive as well. I was trying to think of if I was having a conversation with a, a person who just takes evolution as not theory, but just this is, this is scientific fact. I mean, that's how most college students, despite like, it, it is a theory, and, and I think a lot of people would say that if they're honest, that it is just a theory. It's not something you could reproduce in a lab or run double-blind tests on or anything like that. And yet everyone, at least uh, unbelievers, just have this built-in evolution is the origin story. And something I didn't really realize was that uh, evolution and Darwin is really a fairly recent origin story. Um, and I'm curious, Keith, do you happen to know, like, so uh, what would David Hume's origins story be um, or, or anyone's origin story in the unbelieving world prior to Darwin? Yeah, you, well, you would have, um, I don't know what the cause, like the fancy term being the cosmology more in Western culture outside because it was dominated by Christendom, you know what I mean? So, yeah. since, so I don't know, like, uh, and even on page 40, Mitch quotes, a brief chunk of Hume where he's kind of left, uh, you know, where am I or what, uh, for what causes do I derive my existence uh, and to what condition shall I return? So he, he seemed to be kind of relatively agnostic-ish uh, as far as his origins and where he came from. If you go back to the ancient Greeks, they'd be a bit more, maybe more apt to some notion of uh, basically that matter is eternal. And so it's just kind of always existed. Um, and then you kind of have your, your pagan cosmologies, which would be some sort of fight between the deities and stuff like that. But for the most part, aside from some view that matter is eternal, uh, you had some form of more polytheistic type of creation stories and stuff like that. But in Western culture, I don't know, and that's even where, I, I don't know if it was quoted in this or something else I was reading, 
where Darwin allowed them to be intellectually fulfilled atheists. Um, yeah, that's where that's kind of what I was getting at. He he says that. Um, yeah, he says that in here. I forget where the exact quote yeah. is. And I, and I, I think, so I think that kind of shows that like in the West, there was a vacuum, you know what I mean? Like you, you throw off God and we're in a total vacuum as far as our origins. Then Darwin's able to come along and, and, you know, lay out his theory of evolution. But even, but, but even just from a cosmology standpoint, and if you listen to uh, the Darwinists, uh, they would even want to make a distinction between cosmology and biology. And so what the Darwinist wants to say is, you know, we're not a we're not a philosophy about the origins of the cosmos. We're we're about life on Earth, the development of life on Earth. So even if you're talking to a strict biologist, um, they still don't necessarily have a cosmology. So I don't know where you can still be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. You know what I mean? Because you're you're still not telling us where matter comes from and everything else. Uh, you're starting with the concept of a self-replicating molecule or life. You know, four point eight billion years ago, then all the diversity in the world coming about through that. So so I, I still don't see how you're necessarily an intellectually fulfilled atheist uh, in that context. But that's kind, of, uh, that's kind of where they wanted to go. But in the context of evolution itself, as he lays out, I think, pretty well, is you're actually, um, you know, there's reason to be skeptical about your senses. So. Yeah. So why don't we kind of uh, bring our conversation to a close? I want to talk about agnosticism and humility. And um, I'm kind of struck by this. I'm almost kind of drawn to people when they – when they say they're not an atheist, they're, they're agnostic, and they're very kind of cool, calm, and pretty reasonable people. I don't know if you've ever uh, encountered some of these people where you're, you're kind of surprised. That some of the atheists, they really just want to shout you down and get you out of there. But there's some people who come across as like, I'm very cool, I'm reasonable, and I'm agnostic because I'm not quite sure. I'm not even saying that what you're saying is not true. Uh, they'll, they'll tell you and um, they're just saying, I just don't feel like there's a good enough reason to believe it. I'm agnostic about it. And lately, I, I've been just telling students when they say they're agnostic, I just ask them, so do you go to church half the time? And, <laughs> and none of them do. Uh, so I'm like, I think you're an inconsistent agnostic. But Keith, why do you think that is that uh, agnosticism has this veneer of humility and even virtue behind it? Uh, I think there are several reasons. Um, this might seem like a detour, but hopefully it makes sense. So I, I think if you look at the Enlightenment coming along, that was kind of a, a dogmatic atheism in a way against Christianity and against kind of strands of the West. And you look at the success of science and you know technology and all that sort of jazz. But then you're kind of rocked by the First and Second World War and all this sort of in the 20th century just being a bloody, bloody century. And so it's kind of like the Enlightenment led to a lot of death and. And what you end up having, uh, to an extent, is people coming out the other side that what dogmatism ends up producing is death. You know what I mean? And, and so we know we don't want that. You know what I mean? And, and so I, I think some strands of the agnosticism is they think that if you're an absolutist, you end up abusing and oppressing those outside of you. So I, I think from a cultural standpoint, that's one of the things we're addressing. So if we're religiously dogmatic, we're the Taliban, you know what I mean? Or if you have a meta narrative like the communists and you end up killing a bunch of people or the Nazis. So what we want to do is kind of have this tolerance and this kind of pluralism and relativism and not be too dogmatic, but kind of agree to certain things. So I think that's a little bit of the cultural phenomenon that's going on. But then secondly, um, with persons, I think also, that plays in a little bit. I, I do think every now and then, I do think I bump into someone, you know, obviously I believe Romans one is true, but you're like, yeah, I think this person's relatively neutral. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think that's reality. Um, but the place where I'd want to push them, the only way you can kind of be a skeptic, I think, is if you know something. Um, and so if they're kind of a global skeptic, um, the minute they go to reason with you about their skepticism, they're settling in a place of knowledge. You know what I mean? So global skepticism and global agnosticism just doesn't work. Um, and so with the agnostic, I, I think kind of psychologically there are two things. And John Frame actually has a really good section um, in his The Doctrine of the Knowledge of God where he – and th this deals with our agnosticism about God. Sometimes it's dressed up as God's so holy other. I don't think it's possible we could know anything about him. And that kind of sounds pious and it kind of sounds good and stuff like that. But the reality of it is what it really ends up doing is negating God and his power and saying he can't reveal himself to us. You know what I mean? So while it initially sounds good, um, one, they're still saying something about God. He's so holy other. How do you know he's so holy other that you can't talk about him? Um, so I'd want to push there. But then secondly, 
I would also want to push back and saying you're actually limiting God quite a bit in saying that he can't speak to us, reveal himself plainly to us. And so I think those are, those are some of the phenomena. That, and we, we talked about this maybe on the first episode. So much of our evangelism is really counseling almost, you know what I mean? Like it, it's, it's not straight up intellectual battles. And so when you're dealing with somebody who's agnostic, you know, sometimes it's like, oh, why do you even just ask them, why do you believe that? And then once they begin to put their cards on the table a little bit more, and then from there you can even, uh, and that's where even our apologetic wants to be person specific is, is lay in your arguments a little more plainly. And, and one of the things I like about presuppositionalism is half the time it is our main goal in evangelism is just explaining our position as well as we can and as gracious as we can. And once we begin to explain that God's the creator of the heavens and the earth and we are his image bearers and we've been made to know him, strands of agnosticism fall away. But within that, I think if we're honest, we're, we, we are agnostic at plates. We, we don't know all things. We're not exhausted at our knowledge. Um, but that strand of agnosticism that we do have um, doesn't lead us without hope that we have no knowledge of anything in the world. So that, that's the place where I'd want to push back on the agnostic. Uh, you can't be an agnostic totally unless you're just going to remain silent. Um, but the minute you speak and the minute you reason, you show you have some element of knowledge. And then I want to tease out the implications of who God is and that he has the ability to reveal himself to the agnostic. Those are, the, those are usually the routes I try to go. Yeah, I think a lot of the agnostics I've known have been former, like, Roman Catholic or grew up in an evangelical church and then, like, pastor committed adultery or, you know, sexual abuse or uh, some kind of, it was just like a church where you'd be like, yeah, I don't think, you know, that's a synagogue of Satan, actually. And so, and so the, they're, they're just turned off for um, all sorts of reasons that I think I would be turned off. And then the place they land is just this place of, I'm not really sure. And so their beef isn't necessarily, uh, we'd say ultimately it, their beef is with God, but their, uh, what they're angry at is actually a corrupt version of Christianity, or they're actually angry at the sins of so-called Christians who are doing things in the name of Jesus that they shouldn't, and they don't have a, that's so easy for the devil to play on and nurse bitterness. And then you have true Christian people. They are now the scapegoat for this person's angst that they never had kind of resolved. Yeah. And even Jesus, you know, part of his rebuke of the Pharisees is he's dealing with that. You know what I mean? He's interacting with people who are sheep without a shepherd and uh, even, is it Malachi, where he says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And, and we often throw that out, but who, he's, who he is rebuking there are the priests. And so he's the religious people, the religious leaders. And so I think that's a, yeah, I think a lot of that plays in. And even just kind of from an apostate standpoint, sometimes, uh, and again, I'm, I'm interacting with oftentimes people who are 18 to 22 years old, and they're not necessarily hardened kind of apostates at that point. But it's often, to be honest, uh, I feel like I'm interacting with somebody who went to college and they're sexually immoral for the first time. And I mean, that's such a vital issue for 18 to 22 year old people. And uh, I remember I was at St. Louis Obispo probably about a year ago. And a young woman there was like, Oh, I used to be a Christian, but I'm not anymore. And uh, instead of going through, through a bunch of stuff, and this is kind of a apologetic thing, but I ended up just asking her like, and actually it's a little bit stealing from Andy Stanley. So to give a shout out to Andy Stanley, um, I, I, I said, I just said, uh, so why don't you believe he rose from the dead? And she just kind of got quiet. She's like, I might still believe that. You know what I mean? And so it's like one of these things, she had all this other stuff and like, all right, let's get to the heart of the issue. Like that did Jesus rise from the dead? And from there we can work through these other things and his grace and all that sort of stuff. And it was kind of, it was interesting to me. And, and I like, that was the first time I said that to her or to somebody. And since then I, I've kind of, depending on the context, I've kind of used that question a handful of times. What I've kind of generally noticed is that it's almost like the seeds are still there of their evangelical faith and maybe they were immoral and they thought, well, I've lost my purity. Therefore I'm done. You know what I mean? They, they kind of have a religious context that tells them your purity is everything. Now that that's gone, you're done. Or it's a message of grace that, all right, well, it was evil. You know what I mean? And, but there's grace, there's mercy, kindness. So anyway, uh, even as you, even you know, in my context, I feel like most of the agnostics building up your point of, people with a little bit of a background. That's what I've kind of discovered oftentimes. Um, that or occasionally I do bump into a kid who genuinely, like I had dinner with a guy in Oregon a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago now. And he's just like, I know nothing, man. I thought you were funny out here. And he's like, and you said you'd have dinner with somebody. Will you have dinner with me? I was like, yeah, I'll have dinner with you. And he's like, I know nothing. I've never been to church before. I know, I know nothing of what you're talking about. 
all, like, he's just like, I just thought you were kind of funny and blah, blah, blah. And so we had dinner. I explained the gospel to him. He didn't become a believer. But I, I generally felt, I was like, there's almost like no malice in this kid. You know what I mean? Like, they're, they're, he, I think he's being totally honest. He's, there's no, I'm agnostic and you're really, oh, you're just bitter. You know what I mean? Like, he really seemed like, I know nothing. Just tell me what you believe. So uh, I, I do think there's some strand of that kid out there. Uh, that we can also get to interact with. And it's probably more common for younger people, especially out West, uh, Oregon, Washington, California, and maybe even in Northeast where they have not grown up in the church. Yeah, it's funny. I actually have been reading, I'm doing a bunch of church planting and missionary reading for a, kind of a church planting group that I'm working on. <laughs> and uh, I'm reading, I read this book, Contagious Disciple Making, and there's lots of stuff that I would totally disagree with. But one of the things I really like, so this is a guy who like planted, I don't know, I think they've seen like a million people come to Christ in India through, you know, some relation to their church planting efforts. But he talks about this whole category of a person of peace. Like they have this whole category that God prepares a person of peace to be the, the kind of first entryway point for the gospel in a community or a culture. And it's almost like that's the kind of person we're describing where we'd say, okay, we obviously know they're not neutral. We know that they're dead in their sin, but God, God is doing this preparatory work where there's someone that uh, you could say, let my peace rest upon this household. You stay with them. This is what the disciples do when Jesus says, go out and preach everywhere. You show up. Oh, this is a person of peace. They're not antagonistic to the gospel, but they're not exactly a Christian yet. And so I think we, uh, the Bible does give us this category. And of course it took me, you know, reading some charismatic missionaries to, to see that. Okay. Yeah. I think that is a, a legitimate category for someone. So I'd be looking for those people of peace now, man. Shalom. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I honestly, like, I've got so helpful here in the evangelism. Cause I, that's one of the, you know, I always maybe take swipes at presuppositionalism, but I feel like it enables us to say, Oh, people are dead in their sins and transgressions. So I got to run roughshod over everybody. And if I do that, it's just because, well, Romans one's true. It can't possibly be that my disposition was bad. It can't possibly be that I wasn't really sure in the gospel. I wasn't gracious. I wasn't loving. It's always just Romans one. You know what I mean? And, if, and at the end of every interaction, if you find for everybody out there, if you find yourself after the end of every interaction, quoting Romans one, I'm going to go ahead and say the problem's you. The problem's not every single individual that the Lord has brought into your life. Uh, the problem's you. So, so it's usually, but I, I'm glad like, that you mentioned that because I think people need that component. Uh, it might be too heavy in strands of American evangelicalism with like, oh, people are a zero to 10. We just need to bring them to the 10 mark. And then you have the Calvinist guy who's like, everybody's a zero. They're always a zero. You know what I mean? And, uh, but the reality <laughs> is there, 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 there's a little bit of both going on and there's a real world of people with different experiences and different places that they're coming from. And, you know, even acts, there's God fears and stuff like that. And, uh, people only knew John's baptism. So yeah, you, you, you're working through people of a, of a myriad of depths and lengths and breadths. And so we have to, uh, we have, we need wisdom in dealing with individuals. Yeah. Well, I'll just close with a, a final exhortation for those of you who are listening, who, ma who made it to the end is that <laughs> the best way to, to grow as an evangelist is just to simply do it. So uh, have conversations. Often I find it uh, the the place that we need to probably start is in our own families, with our own friends, with people that there's real like, uh, there's already a relationship there. You talk, people talk a lot about doing friendship evangelism, but the truth is most of us already have friends that need to be evangelized, but we're too scared to do it. And it, sometimes it's easier to interact with unbelievers because we don't have to, you know, it's not going to ever be weird. So I think, but when you're willing to risk things being weird between your friends or family, I found that that's often the place where I'm forced to really go to God in prayer and be actually like really trying to understand why this person thinks that way. And that's really where you grow as an evangelist, as a minister is when you're in a relationship with someone, not just trying to do the, you know, pwn people on Facebook with your really good argument. Um, I think some of that can be practice for, for real life, but uh, do it. Find some people in your life who really need, need to hear that. Yeah, and total kind of side funny story. Back in the day when I worked in finance in New York, um, a girl messaged me on Eastern to say, hey, happy Easter. And I text her back with, he's risen. And the next day she's like, hey, you want to have lunch? And so at lunch she's like, are you one of those born again Christians? I was like, yeah, I am. 
And the funny part was, you know, I shared the gospel with her, and she was all into recycling. So I just try to describe the new birth as being recycled. You're a dilap- you're, you're dilapidated. <laughs> and that was so funny. As we go back to our cubes, and she announces to everybody, Keith says I'm garbage and I need to be recycled. And you realize how utterly offensive our message really is. I am thinking I'm being all like winsome and like meeting her where she's at with her language. When she went up and told, you know, everybody, everybody on my team on the floor that I said she's living like garbage and need to be recycled. They're like, oh, sounds fairly offensive. But everybody was kind about it. But yeah, that's, that's what's going to happen. You have people in your life that you share the gospel with. And, and don't be surprised, even if they message you on Easter and just say, hey, happy Easter, just text back, he's risen. And, that, like, and that, those are the little things, actually, that like, will spur conversations on that we often shrink back from. And it's very minimal and it's all you got to do. And then next thing you know, you're kind of having, and you know, she's not a believer. We, we still stay in touch. And she emailed me about a year ago about reading the Bible and stuff like that. So anyway, those are the sorts of things where like, yeah, just make yourself available and you'll discover that the Lord will bring people in your life. Yeah. I like this gospel presentation. I'm going to try it. You're garbage. You need to be recycled. <laughs> Wind. That will preach. That will preach. That's good stuff. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm using that in a sermon soon. I, I <laughs> All right. Well, Keith, uh, where can people find you on the internet to, to get more of your stuff? On the World Wide Web. You can find me at campuspreacher.com. And I hope to update that website here in the next couple of weeks. Um, Keith, at, if you want to contact me, Keith at Campus Preacher. Also, Campus Evangel on Twitter, Campus Preacher on Instagram, and then Keith Darrell on the Facebook. And I think Keith Darrell also on YouTube. And Lord willing, over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be working through the Torah on Twitter, probably next week, probably months, working through Torah on uh, YouTube videos. And also I'm going to be making a response to Cosmic Skeptic and his debate, actually brushing on Darwin's doubt here in chapter five about the place of reason and naturalism. So hopefully I'm supposed to meet with a buddy and finish that this week. So hopefully that gets done this week. Great. Well, reach out to us, hit uh, me or Keith on Twitter, and we'll see you guys next week for Philosophy Friday. Peace. Peace.